Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You don't say America with this intensity. You say Al-Qaeda makes you proud. Al-Qaeda makes you proud. You don't speak that way about America. And obviously, and importantly, Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. This is the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan, and that was Donald Trump the President of the United States, at a rally in North Carolina last night. It comes in a week where his racism has been on show like never before. And we'll be talking about that later on, about the squad and about the news from America for women, especially women of colour and men of colour. On the episode today, we have the book club back again. So if you've read Elizabeth Day's How to Fail, or even if you haven't, stay with us for that. And we also talk to a woman called Rachel Lee, a Dublin firefighter who, when she's not fighting fires, spends most of her time in the water. She came in to talk to us about a very big swim she's embarking on next week. But first, Polly Dennison, a digital journalist with us here at the Irish Times, is going to talk to us about the dress of the summer, among other issues of interest to women this week. And we're also joined by Roisin Ingle, who also has interesting things to say about what's going on. Polly, you actually did a very uh, serious journalistic exercise and you went to look at this dress and you tried it on. I did. As I said in my piece, in the name of good journalism, I went to... Zara on South King Street in in, in Dublin City Centre and tried on the dress. Um, it looked horrendous, as I said. Um, Describe I, it to us. So it's it's a high neck, it's a high crew neck, long sleeve, mid-length to probably ankle length, depending on your height. Which now to me, I want uh, to say, sounds fantastic. That's the thing. No, Sleeves, like, sounds like something the out of The Handmaid's Tale. Up to the neck. <laughs> You could wear it on any occasion. No, you could, absolutely. No, that, this is the thing. That on paper, I was completely pro the dress to begin with. I thought it sounded great. Went to try it on, looked, looked dreadful. The problem is that, well, for me anyway, was that I fell between two sizes, which is often the case. And it also is a tent. Just it's just as a tent. You see, it's that massive. sounds very appealing to me. I like tents. Oh, look, I, I love a tent. But Roshin, as we all know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's there are tents, tents and there's tents. tents. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I was hoping for a, a comfortable tent that was not uh, a circus tent. Um, <laughs> so, which I think is the the grey area between the two. Um, the the first size I tried on was was a medium. I it was completely tight across my shoulders didn't work the large I was swamped in it now as I said as well in my piece I'm not a completely easy to fit size I'm a 12 to 14 but I'm also almost 6 foot but dresses are usually fine Um, dresses are usually not the issue but it's gone viral it's everywhere Um, there's been articles in mostly across the British press for the moment um, about, about this dress and how popular it is it has its own dedicated Instagram account called hot for the spot that's the number four um, which has, I think now, last check, 11,700 followers. 
and and counting. And people are taking pictures of them all in this in this dress, mm. like at different events. So people are actually taking pride in in wearing the same dress. You know the way usually it's a bit of a faux pas. It's like people are turning up knowing that other people are going to be wearing this dress and not minding it seems to be. Now, can I just point out, having done my own very serious journalistic Excellent. research on this, on your instructions, um, I did see a picture of Victoria Derbyshire in it. Yes. And she is wearing a nice tight belt on it. Yes. And it looks oh. like a tailored dress. Now, on anybody else, I suspect, or on somebody who's actually bigger than a size eight, uh, you would look like a sack of potatoes in it if you put a belt on it. What's your view on that, Polly? Could you put a belt on it? I think you could. I've seen, I've seen, uh, on uh, particularly on this Instagram account, um, I have seen women putting belts on it, and it, it makes massive difference. But the thing, like some people are, are wearing it without the belt, and it looks, it looks really nice. It looks very flowy. I, you know, if you get the fit right, this is the key thing. You have to be in that Zara sweet spot for fitting really kind of uh, concisely into their into their measurements. Um, but there's a massive amount of discrepancy from piece to piece when you go in um, that I've, I've found anyway. Um, so sometimes you'll get a, a medium that fits. Sometimes I've had to buy XL and stuff. So it really depends on Did the piece. Did somebody once describe Zara as a theatre of cruelty when it comes to fitting? <laughs> yes. So. Because I have found this with Zara, I'm afraid. Well, I have to say, as a woman who's bigger and fat and whatever else, I would never even venture into the doors of Zara except to look at maybe some accessories because they do have some nice accessories that are, you know, you don't have to be a certain size to fit in. So I, I feel like, yeah, kind of, I hear people talking about the sizing of, of the actual clothes that are in the more, uh, the range from, say, 8 to 16. But then if you're bigger, you don't even want to go into Zara because there's nothing there for you, really, I don't think. Now, can I just put something to you both? Um, the stylist uh, who has made it her business to run this to run this Instagram account uh, for the dress, which is ridiculous in itself, I have to say. But she says she's had so many messages from women to tell tell her that their boyfriends or husbands hate it, but it's still their favourite piece in their wardrobe, and now it's become a sort of a club. Is this a complete marketing switch, Polly? I have to say, I've, I've wondered that. Um, it not not from Zara, from what I can see, they have not push this 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 number at all. Um, Could they have paid the stylist to do it for them? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's that's hard to, that's hard to know. Um there's been certainly no suggestion that that's happened, but there's been nothing to to say that, that it hasn't. Um but what seemed to happen certainly when I when I looked online at, at Google Trend information, um nobody was looking for this dress until about five or six days ago. I mean, some people were searching for Google, or sorry, on Google for Zara polka dot dress, but it really spiked um, when PA did a story, uh, Press Association did a story on the Instagram account. And then it, and then it went up. Um, but the thing is, the popularity for the dress existed before that because this Instagram account has been collecting so many photographs um, since May. So... It's everywhere. I said it to my brother that I was I was doing this story, and he said, "Oh, that dress, yeah." It's Your everywhere. brother knew. Yeah, okay. He knew. Um, he uh, he told me about another project that a photographer has done, where he went to a festival and documented every woman he saw, a picture of every woman that he saw in that dress, because he just said, it's you. The word to a everywhere. festival. Yeah, that is everywhere. absolutely ridiculous. So uh, it's yeah. not a festival dress. I wouldn't have thought so. I, you'd think it would get very muddy, but it's viscose and viscose wash as well, so I don't know. Well, also, Polly, when you went to Zara, you did say, though, that you did spot a lot of the spotty dress hanging on the rail that is the discarded <laughs> rail where people had obviously tried it on and said, eh, not for me, thanks. That, yeah, I did see that and I, I added to that rail, I have to say. <laughs> so you didn't purchase. I How did much not is purchase. it, by the way? It's 50 euro. 
Okay, not bad. Um, on Zara, just to give them a bit more um, of a positive thing, because I have been a bit mean well, about them there. Well, it is positive. They've been selling the dresses. Well, they've been selling the dress, but I'm just saying that there's no dresses in it for people like me and, and lots of other people like me, which mm. is not... I would hope to, is going to change um, and H&M have sort of reduced their sizes which is a bit depressing as well um, but Zara clothes are going to be made from 100% sustainable fabrics by 2025 all of Zara clothes which is really amazing and also their brands including Massimo Duty and Pull and Bear are going to follow suit so Zara seem to be very well ahead on the whole trend of um, making clothes sustainable Okay and also in fairness if their sizes do suit you yeah they have been actually pretty damn good at turning out the good designs and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. tailoring and that sort of thing. I have friends who go there and just would swear by it as yes. a place to go. Absolutely. I mean, I wish I could swear by it in the same way. Um, and it's great to hear that they're, they're, they're doing more for sustainability. I think they have something like almost two and a half thousand shops in nearly 100 countries. So if you think that all the supply chain must be absolutely massive. So if all of that fabric is going to be um, more sustainably sourced, that's that's very positive. Okay, we leave it at that. Apart, go from and try on the dress, everyone. See what it looks like in you, and take pictures and, and tag us on at it women's podcast. I must confess, I hate polka dot. <laughs> so, so I wasn't. wasn't you left that I to wasn't the well end. disposed towards this. At the I beginning. like a spot. I like a spotty uh, yeah, dress. I, I do. Say. But one of the things that jumps out at me here just finally is that boyfriends and husbands hate it. So I think there's something kind of interesting there. But first, it's for another day. Yeah. About the clothes that appeal to boys and men and the well, clothes women that women comfort. feel comfortable I think that's in. the yes. thing. And I mean, the only thing about that Zara dress, another thing that we have to mention is that it does not have pockets. It doesn't have pockets. No. That, Even that though was it's a, a tent. I think they, exactly. Yeah. They could have easily thrown a couple of pockets in there. Oh, if you're going to wear a tent, yeah. please pockets. give us pockets. <laughs> that is actually appalling. I know. Okay, we'll sorry Zara. It's still a way to go here. A lot done more to do, as somebody used to say. Now we're going to move on to something a lot more serious and a lot more upsetting which is the Trump tweets uh, at the squad, so-called, the four women of colour. And quite honestly, it is, it's, it is such a depressing subject, I find it hard to talk about it. Well, there's a lot of talk about the fact that she was married to a brother. I know nothing about it. I hear she was married to a brother. You're asking me a question about it. Uh, I don't know, but I'm sure that somebody would be looking at that. Uh, yeah, that was... The president of America, Donald Trump, um, he was talking there about Ilan Omar and that was in the aftermath of his tweets where he told Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tiab, and Ilan Omar and also Ivana Presley to, quote, go back to their home countries. What would you do? I mean, quite apart from the racism. Let's just leave the racism aside for the moment. That is the president of the United States talking about a congresswoman of colour whom he talks about was married to her brother. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I'm with you, Cathy. It is very depressing. And I know you're saying leave aside the racism, but I do think it's important that we all name it and say it as it is, which is that the president of America is clearly a racist. He is inciting his followers to be following his lead who are already that way minded, um, I would suggest to begin with. And uh, he's... attacking these women of colour, uh, using language that is 
people are saying racially charged and racially infused. I would just so see it as plain racist language when you say to someone to go back to, you, to your own country. That is such a, a racist term, as we know, we've heard it time and time again over years. Um, as it turns out, you know, Trump, whose father was born, I think, in Germany and mother was born in Scotland, is probably less American than some of those women, including um, Alexandra Cortez, whose uh, father was Puerto Rican, I think. And anyway, she was certainly born here. Three of the women were born here and one one was not. Um, it's very interesting to me, too, that this is happening around the time of the Epstein uh paedophilia scandal, which uh, Trump has obviously been very uh, associated with that man over the years, has been heard to speak about uh, that, you know, almost in admiring terms about Epstein liking women on the younger side and was as footage came out this week as well of him at a party where he's touching women on the on the bottom and talking with uh, Epstein and who's doubled over with laughter at the, at the things that Trump is saying about women. So, uh, you know, I do think Trump is a master of this. This racism row is much more preferable for him in terms of vote uh, getting and vote kind of pleasing than a, a paedophilia sort of affiliated scandal would be. So he's managed to shift um, the focus I, I also look at it hopefully in terms of I see those four women as such iconic people in taking a stand in such an an open and outspoken way calling him what he is I think we have a clip here of Omar uh, talking about Trump and, and naming his, his tweet the, the racist language of his tweets for what it is and to distract from that he's launching a blatantly racist attack on four duly elected members of the United States of House of Representatives all of whom are women of colour This is the agenda of white nationalists, whether it is happening in chat rooms or it's happening on national TV. And now it's reached the White House garden. He would love nothing more than to divide our country based on race, religion, gender, orientation or immigration status. Polly, that's a young woman, probably around your age. Um, tremendously articulate, outspoken, but who is now being made the face of the Democrat Party very deliberately, in my view, by the president with a view to re-election. This is the the side of the Democrats that he wants to put out there with a view to frightening his base and those who might be feeling wobbly. Is that your take on it? No, I I, I do agree. Um, She has been completely vilified by, by Donald Trump and at the uh, a rally last night, I think it was in North Carolina, <clears throat> excuse me, he encouraged the crowd chanting, send her back, as we heard. And her her, her background, where she's from originally, where she was born, she's this from Somalia. This is Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar, yes. Yeah. She was born in Somalia. She came to, went to the US when she was 12, I believe, having moved from a refugee camp. Um, she's the one of the four who was not born in the US. She's a US citizen. She has been made the face of the Democratic Party, as you say, um, by Trump to be put to put that in the minds of his base to terrify them, um, and he's using such language as filthy, disgusting, nasty, which is the same language he used uh, against Hillary Clinton in 2016, 2015. Um, and it, it's not surprising in some ways that he has he has f- sort of picked on her. She uh, did say uh, a, a couple of months ago now, I suppose. Um, about the the nine eleven attacks that some people did something and he 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 grabbed that and ran with it, and I think it must be absolutely terrifying for her because 
he is whipping up so much hate and and he's saying she praised Al Qaeda, yeah. which she did not do. No, and and it must be absolutely terrifying for her because she, there's there's no doubt that there are people who are I'm going to say gunning for her is the is the wrong word, but who are who are potentially plotting. It must be, but. It, it's, what's, it must what's, be extra, what's extraordinary as well, though, is that he is saying they must hate America because they're always criticising America. They hate this country. Yet, I don't know if either of you remember his inauguration speech, which you could loosely title American Carnage. He painted this terribly dystopian dark picture of America that was actually deeply disloyal for a president on his inauguration day. And of course, he was going to fix everything on his own. So it's extraordinary that he should accuse these four women of doing something that he did voluntarily and feeding the red meat to the base that he did a few years ago. Roisin, remember when we had our emergency podcast the day after he hit the election? I do, um, and we cried. We cried. But did we imagine it would ever get like this? See, I I think that's why we were crying, Cathy that day. I mean, because the enormity of how awful and disgusting and hateful and in every, all the isms, misogynistic, you know, racist, sexist, everything, we we must have seen. And the reason we cried, some people thought we were overreacting, you know, and I know people in my own life have said to me recently, God, the things that you thought, they're worse than what we thought, you know. I think we had a sense of that just by virtue of all the things he'd shown us. Because you know that saying, when someone uh, tells you who they are, believe them. Donald Trump has not just suddenly become this person. There's decades of, of, of comments and quotes of him being racist in various different ways, whether it's to Native Americans or to other people of colour in, in America. So it's not new. So I think we had a sense of that. But yes, there is a, an incredible, like, yeah, it's it's mind-boggling that the president of the United States is this person, and he's in full view, and he's he's boastful about it, and he's proud about it, and he's not trying to cover it up in any way. In fact, he's trying to amplify it because he feels it's going to play well among his base, as you said. It is terrifying, dangerous, and something that's really important to me, and I know to a lot of people, is that we need to name these things. We need to name it in the media, in our newspapers and broadcasts. And I think people like the New York Times and other organisations have had this conversation. Can we call him racist? Can we call his comments racist? I think we need to. Otherwise, I think we're implicit in kind of diluting down what it is that he stands for. Well, we're also normalising what he says without actually labelling it. So I agree with you. But the problem is, of course, that some of us have been calling him racist for several years now. And we're simply normalising that label. Well, that's the thing. Um, Chris Dooley, uh, the foreign editor here, opened the the Worldview podcast this week by saying every time it sounds like a broken record almost every time we say this is a new low for Donald Trump, like we keep reaching new lows. The, 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 The quality of the rhetoric is being so debased. By, by Donald Trump, he keeps hitting these new lows. You see, and it's getting to the point, Roisin, where you don't want to hear it anymore. So there is a terrible temptation to tune out, which really would be ceding the ground back to him. I do have to have some glass half full thing about those four women. I think they're incredibly brave, incredibly strong, as you said, articulate, smart, you know, strong voices it's it's a, it's a, it's such a that Nancy Pelosi's in a very difficult position as well that's yes. all, all come out and um and you know there's this we, we 
we just need to make him not win in 2020. I think it has to be the focus. I mean, we can't, us sitting around this table can't do anything, but the Democrats there, that has to be their work. That has to be their focus. I know that is. But what do you think about that, Cathy? Like where the Democrat Party are now? I think for Nancy Pelosi, this must be a nightmare because her strategy has been, and I would have agreed with it, cut out the impeachment talk because that would just turn him into the martyr that he wants to be so earnestly. Stop with the impeachment talk, win with your policies, win with your diversity, win with all the good things, the values that America claims to hold. But now she's in a situation where the party has united, oddly enough, behind this. But where is it going to end? Their whole point is to get Trump out of the White House. How are they going to do this? I mean, they haven't even got a solid candidate yet, unfortunately. I mean, much as I like Joe Biden, I think he's not the person for this time. Um, those young women are not. It's, it's too soon. Well, they're too them. young. Yeah, they're it's too, too soon young, and they're too yeah. young. So, Polly, do you see any hope there? I mean, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren. Um, I, th- I think Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren are, are both uh, very promising. I do also have concerns that it's just not it's not the time then nobody's going to be actually able to beat trump now there was a poll out this morning which was quite encouraging or maybe it was it was yesterday us time but um the majority of americans according to this poll which again we should say you know caveat they're not always most accurate but still this poll said that the majority think that the things that trump has said are offensive they are racist um so that that is something that is positive at least um but i do worry that he's he's still going to be able to get the right states that he needs for the electoral college system and it is worrying for example that so many people agree with him on the immigration side of things they actually do agree with a core thing there which is too much illegal immigration get them out as we know from a piece in the irish times this week where a lot of Irish in America said, we got here legally, so should everyone else. In other words, shut the door, come through the normal route, even though the situation at the border is completely irregular and not at all conducive to welcoming in refugees. So, Roisin, you have the glass half full. Uh, I'm finding it very hard to be cheerful yeah, about this today. I, I don't really have it half full, but I, I tend towards optimism in my life. So I'm trying to reach and grab for something. And I do think those four women and I do think the fact that surely America as a whole uh, does not believe it's right to tell people to go back to where you came from in the way that Trump has done it and the celebratory nature and the, the language that he's using. Um, I don't think most Americans, I'm hoping, don't agree with that and that that will come to the fore when they go to choose their next president. Do Americans really want to have that um, representing them? Right, well, let's hope the Democrat election strategists are on their best game. Sure they are. Right, finally, we move on, Polly, to another rather more cheerful subject, which is about the funding surge for the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Yes, they reported this week that there has been uh, a surge, they, they say, in response to the uh, the news around the Belfast rape trial. Um, they've had a surge in funding, I think, of around €70,000, uh, which they called an unexpected but welcome bump in funding. Um, there has been an increase in, in the number of sexual uh, assaults and sexual crime that's been... It's, it, there's been an increase in the reporting um, over the last three years. Um, so that, that funding will, will go to very good use. And there's no doubt, Roisin, that this was actually in respect of that of 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 that rape trial because that that seventy thousand piled in in the three months 
after it finished. Yeah, I mean, I think it just galvanised a lot of people. It, it made, I mean, obviously those uh, men were acquitted and found not guilty, but uh, it certainly was something that a lot of people felt very strongly about. I mean, it's on the another end of the scale, but I, and we'll be talking about this next week, but I just wanted to also mention Sinead O'Carroll's uh, experience this week where she was catcalled on the street and put it on Twitter and the response to that. She was on Liveline and we're going to be discussing it. We're going to have a special catcalling um, podcast next week to really dr- drill down into that subject um, and what it's like for women and for some men as well who are um, mistreated in that way. Yes, because it's all about equality in the end, isn't it? Um, the good news about the, the, the Rave Crisis Centre, the additional funds, is they've been ring-fenced uh, in order to support those who are attending court and guard the stations. Uh, so three cheers for Nolene Blackwell, Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Yeah, she's a and great woman. rather more cheerful note. And then we're going to ask Polly, what's on your cultural radar this week, finally? So on my radar at the moment is uh, another podcast called Hysteria, which is an American podcast uh, made by a company called Crooked Media, which is run by... I think it's for uh, former White House, uh, sorry, Obama White House staffers. And Hysteria is presented by a woman called Erin Ryan, who is a comedy writer. Um, she writes for a number of different uh, US television shows. I think she's currently on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But they, uh, it's in sort of three sections. They open it up with a, with a section uh, called the, the State of the Uterus, which is all about the state of reproductive rights in the US and, and where things are a at. A lot to talk about there. A lot to talk about. <laughs> There's a, it's, it's coming under attack uh, in multiple states at the moment. And um, so it's, it's always good to kind of get a, an update on that. And then the middle section is, is a kind of round table of, of, four, of four women who are all working in a similar kind of field in, in comedy or in, in punditry. And uh, it's just, it's a very... Um, light-hearted take on some very hefty subjects and how they're affecting kind of real people in inverted commas. So, Hysteria. That's going to be my new listening for this week. Yeah, Polly. after you've listened to the women's podcast, obviously, then you can listen to Hysteria. Permission to listen to Hysteria afterwards. Yes. <laughs> Please listen to the women's podcast. Well, you're um, listening now, so thanks for that. Yes. <laughs> Roisin and Polly Dennison, your piece is in the paper today. Yes, it's online today. Yep, yep. Online today. Irishtimes.com. Yeah. Irishtimes.com. Make sure you read it. Polly Dennison on the Zara polka dot dress, which is maybe your taste or not. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. Thank you very much, Polly Dennison and Roisin. Now, our book club convened again to discuss How to Fail by Elizabeth Day. Enjoy this lively discussion between book club host Roisin Ingle, that multitasker, her mother Anne Ingle and Irish Times journalist Bernice Harrison and Neve Towie. How to Fail is the book we're going to be discussing today on the book club and it says on the back that this is a book for anyone who has ever failed which means it's a book for absolutely everyone. Part memoir, part manifesto and with chapters on dating, work, sport, babies families, anger and friendship. It's based on the simple premise that understanding why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. It's a book about learning from our mistakes and about not being afraid. And there's been a lot of talk about it. And Neve Towie, tell us some more about it and tell us what you thought. Well, um, so I thought initially when I picked it up, it was going to be a self-help book, which I hate. I hate those books. Um, And it's I mean, it, it kind of is in a way, but in a really lovely way, in the same way you might feel like you've learned something from reading somebody's column in a newspaper where you've been on the journey with them. And it's very much like 
it's like a diary where she spills all and she gives us and she sums it up. You can tell she's a journalist because she sums every chapter up really nicely about what she's learned from it. And um, it just tracks all the way through her life from her childhood in Northern Ireland um, to her experience in secondary school and boarding school, which she hated, um, to going to college um, in England and finally feeling like she fitted in. And, you know, she she gives the sense that she thought it was all going to be done and dusted by the time she got to her 20s like this other bit had been hard and that actually turns out to be one of the hardest parts and it's just it tracks her way through her life um and it she tells about tells us about all the lessons she's learned on the way um and it's really nicely segmented into little chapters you know it, it says you know if you want to skip forward to the bit about friendships you can or um there's other chapters on babies, uh, how to fail at anger, how to fail at work. Um, how to fail at living like Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, <laughs> not something I'd been concerned about up till now, but if you want to know well, how she to got avoid a, that. an assignment, didn't she, to do that? Uh, yeah, and th- there's just some really um, some really lovely stories. And like I, I felt like a bit spoiled because the chapter How to Fail at Work, it just it's so accurate about being a journalist, uh, being a young female journalist in this world. Um, what was it particularly about that that you that resonated? Um, I suppose that feeling of having to do everything you're asked to do and becoming a master of all and or a jack of all trades and a master of none. And that's what happens to her, she says in her eight years in The Observer, that she felt like she'd wasted her time at the end of it, that she came out uh, with no more money. Uh, you know, she was writing the same articles she wrote when she came in and she had no career progression. Um, and that's and also she talks about how journalists pit, are pitted against each other, which is very true. Like it's an incredibly competitive um, industry. Um, and she just talks about how she had to drop all of that and she had to go and say to them, I want to go part time or I want to go on contract. And uh, she has this realisation moment where they say, well, no. And she's been there for eight years. She's done absolutely everything for them. She realises it's not reciprocal. Um, and it's that moment that you, uh, my heart sank a little bit, to be honest with you. I was like, oh, no, that's what's going to happen. Um, but it, 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 she, so, she, so she just takes the brave leap of um, leaving the job and going to become a novelist. And it works out for her, um, which is also really nice to hear that that can work. So the central premise of the book, that by looking at our failures and the things that are disasters in our lives, we can actually learn from. Mm. It's something that I suppose that Samuel Beckett line that is said so many times, fail, fail again, fail mm. better. Uh, do you think she succeeds in, in sort of arguing that, that this is really important? She has a podcast now where she gets people to come on and talk about three failures in their life. Do you think, would you, after reading this book, feel like, yeah, I'm going to look at the things in my life uh, that have gone wrong in a different way? Yeah, I think it's a really important learning in life anyways to know how to fail and that it's to be okay with failure. And she gets that across so well in this. I mean, you're reading the stuff and I was like, God, I've done that and I've learned from that as well myself. And even being able to hear about her failures, it you know, it gives you a little insight into how maybe you can get over struggles at the time. It's a com- It completely justifies the saying that, you know, failure is, you don't ever really fail either. You, you know, you win or you, you learn. And um, I thought, I thought it, it really got across that, that idea really well. Okay. Bernice, what did you think of this book? Well, I, when I heard it was for the book club, I thought, oh, okay, yeah, I must read that uh, because it's been on my, mm, must read that because I'm really aware of it because the, nobody can get publicity for a book 
like a journalist that they've written. Let's face it, it's true. Um, so she's a very successful journalist. And I thought I, I wasn't tempted to pick it up first because I've been listening to the podcast and I'm a huge fan of the podcast, How to Fail podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day. Um, and I thought for some reason, despite all the publicity, despite being battered over the head with the whole thing, I sort of thought it was based on the radio, uh, on her podcast, and it's actually not. Of course, it's her memoir. And so, so anyway, so I'm a big fan of memoirs. Um, I, I, and I just would take up one thing that Neve said. I think actually memoirs are the self-help books of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think self-help books had a sort of a nasty, grubby sort of, oh, I don't want to be seen reading a self-help book, but a memoir mm, can read that. And I, I think... Like Pray Love, I suppose, exactly, is a memoir, was, but the, that was essentially that was, a oh, that was the ultimate one. The ultimate yeah. one. Yeah. And I think that the sort of acid test for a memoir really is if you share no experiences or maybe some experiences with the writer, but you still get something from it. You still identify with it along the way. And that to me is is the test whether a memoir is good. And by good, I mean, you know, worth spending your time with. And I think this is. <laughs> That's a very roundabout way of saying... I wasn't sure what you were yeah. going to say. <laughs> That's a roundabout way of saying that this, I, I very, very, very much enjoyed this. Though, um, you know, when I read the chapter on, the, there's so much I identified with, and then there was some that I just couldn't. I'm, I'm not a 30-something, a jour- well-connected journalist in London, you know, I, I, you know, on, and the things that she really, really goes very strong on in this memoir, her experience of IVF, her experience of her marriage breakup. I haven't experienced either of those. So, but, but still, there were fascinating chapters which you really do learn from because she has learned. There's a huge sense. And of course, I'm going to use the expression that's just horrible. Journey? No, <laughs> she has done some work on herself. Ah. So, she, no, it's very clear. And she says that, you know, that she's a therapy, that she's been able to really think these things through, why she behaves, why she's always had serial boyfriends, why she's, why she's behaved in the way she has. So that's, I found, you know, very instructive in the way you would get, I suppose, from a self-help book. I mean, Yes, like you, I lit on the journalism section. Oh, my God. That, that, I was nodding my head like a dog in the back of a car <laughs> reading that, you know, because it was so true uh, for all the reasons that you said, Neve. Um, I was very interested in the 20s chapter, and I thought it was a very insightful chapter, the, particularly the one on her 20s, where she says that that's the hard decade. It's not the teenage years, because in the teenage years, which are supposed to be the hardest years, she said for her, and she does, and she had pretty rough teenage years growing up in, in North because she was an outsider when she arrived to Belfast. Her father was a surgeon up there, English man, moved to the North. So she was a total outsider and they made her feel like that in the school for sure. Um, but it was in her 20s and I it made me really look at my 20s, which are quite a while ago now, but... Um, in a different way, because she says, you know, you're unmoored. You know, all those safety nets that are around you, all those structures that are at school, that's gone. College, that's gone. Your parents aren't telling you what to do anymore. That's gone. All those things that keep you in, in place, in shape, or that you can rebel against, or you can, you know, they're gone. It's just you. And then society has such expectations of what you should be doing. And, you know, she talks about, I've seen her friends all seem to be having a great time, and why wasn't she? And all that. And career... So I found all that really, really fascinating. I mean, she's a terrific writer. It, you're, it's a page. It's a page turner. You read it in a flash, you know. 
Um, and I was very interested when I was thinking of Neve, who is in her twenties, uh, when I was reading it. And I, I wondered, did you, did you, did that chime particularly? Yeah, completely. Mm. Yeah, and it's so nice to see it written down because mm. everyone talks about your twenties as being this glory period <laughs> where you yeah. know you've been relinquished from school and your parents, and you can pursue whatever you want. And there's all this pressure for it to be the best years of your life for you to be really loose and having fun all of the time and actually it's re- it, it is it is really hard you lose yourself in your 20s I think completely you lose your identity and who you are if you're not careful if you're not aware of forging it and I think especially now for people in their 20s who are surrounded by all this social media pressure and this kind of homogeny to look the same and to act the same and do the same things and be at the same places um I think that your 20s are actually a very difficult mm. period. And that combined with the fact that you're not actually a real adult. Like, you don't know how to do things like apply for a mortgage or what a solicitor does when you hand over that. Like, I hadn't a clue. And you're expected to know all of these things. You feel stupid for not knowing all of these things. And I think it's that acceptance that you're learning mm. and that your 20s are about forging who you are and about learning and that you cannot just be... You know, we... we, we We've been to universities, been huge money spent on us as, you know, late teenagers and people in their early 20s. There's this expectation that you should have taken a certain amount from that. Um, but it's the on the job experience that that's where you learn. And I thought that she mm. captured that really well and that she struggled with the idea of the perpetual boyfriend. And the. I, I thought all of that was mm. really, really accurate. I've met Elizabeth Day and she's a very impressive person. Mm. And she's also somebody who's very has had a very privileged up. Mm. Bringing exactly. Anne. And I, I think it's interesting that. how that's kind of part of it in a way, isn't it? Because the podcast and the book, it's this idea that um, you can be very privileged and have everything going for you and still have moments right. in your life yeah. that you're a complete exactly. failure. How does she deal with that? Well, I, I mean, that's what I was coming to because um, she's a privileged upper class family she comes from. She gave graduated from Cambridge with a double first, mm. you know. Who does that? And she <laughs> wants to win awards for her journalism. She's a uh, Book the party, won awards. That's a big deal, yeah. I mean, what a failure. How could you do that, Elizabeth? <laughs> what are you trying to say to me? So, yeah. and, then, and then she did the podcast, uh, which was a, a great success. Uh, so it was, I took up the book saying, you know, how can that be? But um, <laughs> she starts off telling a very interesting story about her first failure when she was, her sister had chicken pox and she thought she would do the good thing. She had a sister who was two or three, eight years older and she went to get a hot water bottle for the sister. The first thing was she filled it up with cold water because she didn't realise that the water had to run a little bit and then she didn't screw the cap in quite properly and she took it into her sister triumphantly and handed it to the sister in the bed and promptly all the water, cold water fell all over and, and she failed. And this, uh, she puts in the book, was her first failure, big failure that she can remember. And I thought that was, you know, it's one of those little things. But she said um, she learned from that is that she, no matter how good your intentions are, sometimes you fail anyway, Like which I thought was very interesting. But I particularly liked the, the, the 20s bit didn't resonate with me because in my 20s I had four kids, like, you know, so I wasn't really finding <laughs> myself. I was just <laughs> in and out of Hollis Street, you know, so uh, uh, the 20s bit did nothing for me. Uh, but the, the dating and the relationships, the IVF experience was very poignant, I thought, and coming from a woman who's got eight children, I, I, I can't relate to that, but at the same time I found it very interesting and I, I loved that too. Um, and she writes about uh, the miscarriage that occurred during the course of a dinner with friends. 
And Phoebe Waller-Bridge used that episode in Fleabag. But she was actually, yeah, so the, the, there's an episode in Fleabag where there's a dinner and yes. in the middle of it someone goes off and, and, and she thinks that she's having a heavy period. In fact, she's a miscarriage. Yes. And I think she rang up um, Elizabeth Day, who's her friend, Indeed, to say, I've written this scene. Can I mind use if it? I use it? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, so the other thing about the book is that it's funny as well. Like, you know, I mean, even in the darkest moments and some of the boyfriend things are absolutely hilarious. You know, the... Guy with the um, camp bed and yeah. all that. I thought it was very. Tell us about the camp bed for people who haven't read. Uh, well, he brings a camp brings, bed yes. because He's her bed is inconveniently yes. sized yeah. or something. Yes. So he brings a camp bed to yeah. so, so yeah. he could sleep there. Yeah, that's very nice. Isn't so it? She had really some dodgy boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> she did indeed. But the, the chapter on, as you've pointed out, on the work experience of, of journalists, I think was very relevant. Um, like She went in and looked for a, a rise and they said no. And so she said, right, I'm gone. And that was a very, very brave move of her. And she went on not just to, to write books, but also to do freelance journalism. And I mean, not everybody has a luxury of being able to do that. I mean, she had the confidence and the wherewithal to do that and fair play to her. She had a few bobs saved up. But, you know, it must be very hard, especially for, I, I don't know if, you, I'm not a journalist, but I would imagine that um, women in the, in the field have all the other difficulties that women in other fields have of, you know, when you go, you're not res- as much respected, at, you know, and there's not as many of you and the men tend to get more money. I don't know. I mean, not a journalist, but I imagine that's the thing, <laughs> the way it is. We're all quiet um, about that. <laughs> And, and the, the thing that... Yeah. Oh, suspicious. There's, there's tumbleweed. It's just rolling down the table there. Whoop, tumbleweed. Sorry, have I said the wrong thing? <laughs> no, no, no. Um, well no. And also, she comes from this really privileged background, right? Which normally, if anyone comes from a privileged background, Roshi knows this, I have this terrible antenna that goes up. But I still... My well, mum's an inverted snob. I am. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I apologise. That's one of my failures in life. But I'm getting over it. And reading the likes of this book would be something that would make me get over it very quickly. Oh, that's good. Yes, it would be, because I, I love her. I just absolutely love her. Well, you would like, love her in real life. She's a very likable yeah, person. I'm sure she is. Very smart, but very self-deprecating. Yeah, and kind of. I, I really think I like her, even though she, the thing about food got me a bit when she's she's very conscious of what she eats very all the time. I mean, I'm going to read this bit, but, but because this came halfway through and, you know, you get this impression, this really sort of empowered woman who's, you know, very successful and everything. And then she says, the pursuit of thinness, and this, I suppose, gets to what you were you were saying, that it's a manifesto in, in a sense, you know. So this this little paragraph gets to that. It says, the pursuit of thinness seems to me to be a fool's errand. And yet, despite being clear about this in an intellectual way, when it comes to how I truly feel I always, always want to be thinner than I am. I have positive phases when I think I look good and I have bluer phases when I don't. Not a day goes by when I don't feel a bit guilty for something I have or haven't eaten. I, you know, it's paragraphs like that that, that are thrown out and you think, oh. Um, you talked about privilege there, Anne. You know, I, I mean, I think she does slightly gloss over the privilege or her sort of fantastically, fantastically sort of resourced background, if you Absolutely. like. Absolutely. Her mother, when she was, what, nine, ten, took them off to Paris yes. for six months. Yes. From Northern Ireland. Who does that? That's like, where I throw in, I've never been to Paris. <laughs> did you, did you bring your Paris. daughters there for well, six months? I have never in? been there. Oh. <laughs> I've never been to Paris. <laughs> I've, I've never been to me. <laughs> and then at the age of 13, they decided she should go to Russia. I know. On her own for a month. You know, because she was kind of 
flirting with learning I'm Russian. I'm amazed, given your kind of inverted snobbery that we've seen over the years, <laughs> oh, that God. that didn't drive you mad, actually. I'm actually no, really interested. She I, must I, have I, done a very skillful thing it, where she managed to, to make you still like her, even though all that was going on. Yeah, I was sorry for her because I think these ambitious yeah. parents, oh, yes, we'll send you off to Russia, you know, and she ends up... And Were you sent to Russia, Russia? Oh, I told you. Rush. No, we're Rush. Rush. Yeah, but anyway, See, she, she goes to Russia and the host that was looking after her, they didn't know who she was, obviously, because the woman kept having these male people come and say, these are my cousins, she said to the young young 30-year-old Elizabeth Day. But the fact that she puts that all in... Um, you know, she's having a go at them in a, in a right, way. Yeah. Do you know, which I loved. I see. I'd I love to know more about the parents, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. Niamh, what about the relationships and the dating and that kind of stuff? Like, she's really honest about all of that. Did, did any of that particularly strike you and, and did you relate to any of it? Yeah. Um, well, I've been in a relationship for a long time as well, so I'm not, I haven't been on that dating scene, that, thankfully, because all of my friends are and it sounds awful. <laughs> Um, and I'm very glad that I don't ever want to find myself there. Um, I thought she was really honest about it, though. And I thought what resonated with me was that she said she felt she went from one long term relationship to another, especially in her 20s, in this pursuit of stability. And I think that definitely I could I could resonate. I could identify with that because I, like, I kind of did that, too, like in 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 a sense where you don't want to slip into this world of unknown, which really is important to do, I think, in your 20s. that you So, you know, to mitigate that, you, you get these solid relationships and you go from one to the other in order to try and, you know, steer away from... Uh, uh, from um, the uncertainty. The uncertainty yeah. of it all. Um, so I thought that... I thought fair play for... for then going out and attacking it the way she did, you know, having the guy <laughs> with the camp bed. And, and she, she had was, a, a much younger boyfriend as well, didn't she? I don't yeah, know yeah that, she did, yeah. yeah. There's someone who's like 10 years and, younger and than her. And her perspective on that, because that was the time she was starting to think, do you remember, that was the time she yeah. started to think about babies. having babies. Mm-hmm. And she really felt, you have wasted my baby years. You know, how <laughs> dare you? You know, and there was such raw anger in that chapter, actually, mm-hmm. Uh which was kind of, and it, and I suppose that's another reason why the book is so successful. She's so self-revealing, mm. and y- you f- you feel she is really exposing herself. And I think, from a a reader's point of view, there is a, you get to sort of walk in her shoes for a little while, yes. and that's the success. She's honest, mm. and that that means an awful lot when you're reading a book because you know, what's and all we got it, you know. But why? But I, I I do, and I have been thinking about this for a while. Why? Is memoir now such successful and huge genre? What is it about us that we all want to read memoirs? Why? Why do? It, why? I wonder. Is it like that link with influencers now, where we mm. only want to buy off people who we kind of know? Is it the ultimate, is it the ultimate kind of I mean, yeah? Like <laughs> it is in is a it? way. What? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. But don't then know. we've always had memoir kind of writing in terms of columns. You know, Roshan, yes. your column would have been very honest and yeah, open, and would have true. learned a lot from it um, through life experience. Like I think that. That that has always been there. I I, I like the memoir form. Mm. Yeah, Dolly Alderton's been very successful with it last year as well. Mm. You know, and I think that that, especially for people in their like this book, I think is kind of. Do you feel like it's aimed at younger younger women? I think it is. Yeah. What do you think? I've given because you were the daughter. one who brought it to the table. I did, and indeed. you really enjoyed it. I really did enjoy it, but I did have a terrible sense of, of failure myself at, <laughs> at the end of reading Why? it because. Well, because she's 40 now, right? And she's done all these things. And I looked at myself at 40 and realised, 
I had all I'd done was had eight children. All? Forty. I'd, exactly. Oh, oh, she hasn't children. created any children, and she. I know. One of her, she sees that as one she of sees her that failures. I understand that, but I, I, I did feel like a bit inadequate. Uh, that, that was that was the only thing. But I, but I just loved hearing that story because it would be everything I would have wanted. I would have wanted all of that. I was too busy, you know, feeding kids and doing all that stuff. I would have loved to have had that kind of life that she. But did. then, is that the danger in this book, in a sense, in that? Look, fail is clearly a relative term in exactly. her world. Yes. You know, she's madly successful mm. and her failures really have And the been people who she has on the podcast are very successful. Madly. I mean, yeah. I, I, the, yes, I, the last one I listened to was the Tracy, Tracy Thorne one, which I highly recommend. But like her failure was, you know, pass, not passing her driving test. I mean, <laughs> you know... Like, there was another guy who, I think it was Sebastian Fox, who was did something bad in a cricket match or something. Exactly. Like, like you know, you just think... Mm, Really? Is that really a failure now? Hold on, you know. So and she I think says as well that she found um, that it's m- women say, "Oh, I can't don't think of just three. I need to have more than just three failures." Oh, and yeah. the men are going, they just can't find the thing that they've actually would use the word fail." Yeah, about, I think her know? next. She started the podcast again now, and I think her new I guess is going to be Nigel Slater. And I think one of the things that he failed at was that he doesn't like going to dinner parties. Yeah, like <laughs> so that is it for a restaurant person. I may Maybe it's not. So I could understand why you could come away from this book thinking, jeepers, if she's talking in terms of failure. What am I like? Whoa. (laughs) But I thought, do you not think it was more about how she interprets those failures and about how she internalizes and makes an anxiety out of what is very clearly a tiny thing? We all do that. You know, no matter how privileged we are, how great our lives are, we take these small little things that we perceive as failure and make them into this massive deal in our yeah. heads. And I feel like, yeah, it looks silly from the outside, <laughs> like you're having a panic attack over your driving test. Yeah. But sure, for some people it yes. is. Yeah. You know, we've all been through periods mm. where we've made a massive deal out of something that's on the surface really not that serious. Yeah. You know, that there are... I think it's okay to say that you've failed at something that, you know, or that you've you've been through something in life that you found really hard, that okay is not the same as losing a child or having serious illness. And it's okay. We don't have to justify what we feel is a failure as well. I think that's okay for her to do in this book. did it make you think about your own failures? And if you were on her podcast, what would you be talking about, do you think? Yeah. Um, I think I'd be talking about friendships. That was a massive one for me in my 20s. I felt like I really failed at it. I talk about it like it's over. I'm in the middle of it. (laughs) Um, Still time. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I, I really identified with her chapter on friendships and that that kind of idea of like over counselling your friends or not giving them space to just fail as well, you know, to be able to look on and just accept that they're at a different stage in life than you are. And I think I failed at that definitely and I struggled with that failure and I didn't couldn't understand or put pinpoint to where I'd gone wrong and I internalised that hugely, made a massive deal out of it in my own head and suffered over it for a long time. Um, and I think that would definitely be my failure if I was going to go on and talk. And you're learning from that then? Mm, I think I've learned. Yeah, no, I'm over it now. Thank God I can talk about it. <laughs> uh, but it definitely, yeah, it impacted me for a long time. Like, And it was one of those things that I made into a huge deal in my head and it probably wasn't. But at the same time, you have to work to get over it as well and you can't you know, something that occupies your head all of the time like the eating thing like do we ever get over that yeah, no. I don't think we ever don't stop so. thinking about every morsel we eat every yeah. day as women I really yeah. don't I think that's huge I found it, I, this is a small thing but I did again this was in at some point dropped in I, I can't find it now she's talking about how you know the idealised woman in terms of hair body hair 
she says every six weeks she goes and gets the top and the all off, like the extreme Brazilian or the whatever. Top and the all. Well, no, that's that's. <laughs> No, no, actually, that's that's a barber term. (laughs) So I'm actually trying to transpose it. Okay, I like it. It sounds right. Yeah, Topaniola. Yeah, yeah, love it. I find that even though she says, you know, what is the matter with women that um, that you know we're 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 buying into this porn culture where you know pubescent pubescent girls seems to be the ideal, and she's a woman in nearly forty. She's doing it. She's doing it. I found that kind of extraordinary, Mm. but. Then maybe that again, maybe that's a generation. Maybe that is, as I said, some parts of the book you read and you think, oh, yeah, oh, I can. And then others you think, what? Yeah. So who would you give this book to? Would you give it to someone? I have given it to my 19 year old. Oh, interesting. Because for the, for the, I, you know, I, I said to her, look, there's probably loads that you're not going to enjoy about it. You know, you're not going to identify with the IVF journey, which is a huge in the book. Um, but I think that the growing up and the the striking out on your own, the twenties, I thought I thought that was very very good. Well, I'm giving it to Rachel. I'm going on holiday. Well, Rachel, we have to enlighten listeners. Oh, could they not know all about us? No, they don't know everybody's name in our family. Okay. You know, all your eight um, children that you had when you could have been out having <laughs> double firsts from Oxford. Yeah, exactly. Don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> take you back. Um, no, Rachel is my daughter. One of my lovely daughters. I have four beautiful daughters, and I'm going on holiday with her next week. And I'm going to take that book and give it to her, and she will love it. I know she will. Uh, whether she relates to everything. I don't know, she, Rachel strikes me as the kind of person who doesn't really dwell on things in her life. I know, that but it might make her think. At. It might make yeah, her think. I'd be interested to hear what she yeah, thinks of exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. She's a more get on with it thing and does yeah, not she reflect would be too much 52 on 52 or 3 or something like that. I can never remember anybody's age, but anyway, she's yeah. about There's that. There's no pictures of me when I was a baby. That was oh, a failure of oh, hers. Russia, as well. Paris, <laughs> and no <laughs> pictures. Yeah. It's all happening. What times do we have to hear that? Holidays in Rush, no Russia, no Paris. Neve, see, they, you... you're all saying who's a failure I'm a failure as a mother because oh, I never took well, you to must Paris. have learned a lot from that being that failure being a failure yeah. yeah thanks a lot um, Neve, who would you give it to or have you given it or would no, you recommend no not yet but yeah I think I'm going to give it to my little sister who is just in second year in college though I'd say she'd probably spit it back out at me because she doesn't want to learn <laughs> uh, spoken that... like a big sister <laughs> just saying just saying. <laughs> she doesn't want to. Those of us who are younger sisters, just saying. We all know, yeah. Yeah, no, maybe I won't. <laughs> no, give it to her, but don't say, yeah, don't oh, say you're going to hate this. Yeah. I expect you or to don't hate it. say, where's the report? Me. Tell yeah. me what you yeah. learned from this. Yeah. Give me your homework afterwards. <laughs> yeah. But your little sister maybe and maybe think, friends, so yeah, would you recommend yeah. it? Yeah, I wish I'd read it earlier, to be honest, oh, like when I was younger. That is so, interesting, yeah. Yeah. But possibly somebody a bit younger. I think it's good. No, well, I really enjoyed it. Still, I learned loads from it as well. Okay, so we're giving it a massive thumbs up here, it sounds like. Definitely. Definitely. And and it's a great read for a holiday because, as as you've said, it's in chapters and you might just go from one to the other. You you needn't read it right the way through, but she's such a good writer. I mean, let's face it, and it's an easy-to-read book and she's a great writer. Have you read any of her novels? No, but I want to read The Party now. Yes, I think The Party is the one to read because I did start reading... The uh, Scissors, Paper, Stone one. And she writes in that book how she got a terrible review from an Irish uh, RT yes, programme. Yes, and so I started to read the book particularly for that. And I'm kind of 
a quarter way through, and I kind of know what that panel was talking about, but Elizabeth, I love you anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay, because she's listening. Of course she's listening. <laughs> tell Dolly to tell her to listen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's great. That was a really interesting conversation because I think that idea of all these things that happen to us, there's all, there's all material to get from it for a future, to learn, to see these things as growing experiences rather than that kind of, oh, means we're a bad person or that we're rubbish, but there's always something to get from it. Um, the, the the cover title How to Fail is, is upside down on the book um, yes. any thoughts? Oh, well, uh, gee, there's a quote which says what does it mean to fail I think it means that we're living life to the fullest so it's not a, not a, a pessimistic book we're living life to the fullest if we fail and we as you quoted Samuel Beckett you know Try again. Fail better. Yeah. I'm going to choose the next book for the book club. Um, I don't think I've chosen one for a while. No, you haven't, Roshi. So Go it's ahead. It's one that uh, landed in with us, and there's quite a bit of buzz about it. It's called Expectation. It's by somebody called Anna Hope. Um, I think it's about friendship and it's a novel. So could you all go and do your homework for our next book club and read Expectation? Yes, indeed. Brilliant. Indeed. Certainly. Thank you very much, Anne Ingle, Bernice Harrison, and Neve Towie. Well, that sounds like a great book that we all need to read. How to Fail by Elizabeth Day. The title is irresistible, isn't it? I don't know where to start with my next guest. She does so much, but let me just tell you, she's an inspiration and not in an Instagrammy, annoying way. She's adventurous and she's about to embark on one of her biggest adventures yet, swimming the North Channel. Here is the intrepid and simply marvellous Rachel Lee. Rachel. Yeah, hi. You're a woman who does everything. (laughs) You're a mum to seven-year-old twins, Bruce and Lex, That's which right. I originally misread, misread as Lee. I thought you had two sons called Bruce and Lee. But anyway, it's Bruce and Lex. You're a full-time firefighter. Yeah. And you go out to sea in a chopper as a swift water rescue technician. So you're a very strong swimmer. Yes, I am. I am. So you're about to embark on this amazing odyssey. Yes. Next week, hopefully. Across possibly mm. one of the most dangerous... Seas yeah, in the well, world. Yeah, coldest. It's cold. It's going to be a cold channel. Cold and full of marine so, life. Tell us about this swim next week. Right. So next week we are doing the North Channel, which is a 21 mile as the crow flies. So it can be a lot more um, with the currents and tides. And it's from Dunnacadie in Northern Ireland. And it goes across to Port Patrick in Scotland. So we're going to swim across the channel. Now, we're doing it in a relay. We're not doing a solo. You and your husband. My husband and, and our friend. mate, Big Row. Yeah. Yes. And we're, we just decided we're going to do this together. And yeah, so that's it. We're going next week. We're just going to wait for a phone call. Drive on up and off we go. Tell us about that stretch of water, Rachel. Describe right. to us what you're going to be up against. OK, well, that's the whole thing about open water swimming. It's so erratic and so volatile. You could start off and it could be lovely and calm. And then like that, it can just be really, really rough. And you just don't know what lies ahead. And it's so, it changes all the time. So you have to be able to adapt to the changes. So in the North Channel, the temperature here at the moment is about 14 and a half degrees and in, in the water. And in the North Channel, it'll be about 11, 11 and a half. So it's going to be cold. Um, it's going to be... Even by your standards now? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, I hate cold water, yeah, it's cold. As the record holder for swimming, the, <laughs> the, the, uh... English, well, the English Channel is a lot warmer compared to the North Channel. Um, so it'll be cold, but we're doing a, like, it's a relay, we're not, in a, we're not doing it as a solo, so we'll be fine, we'll get out. So we're going to do an hour in, two hours out, until we keep repeating that, till we get across. And the problem with the North Channel is, it's renowned for, it's lion's mane jellyfish, and compass jellyfish, and other marine life, like... How big are those jellyfish? The jellyfish are, the lion's mane are big. They're like a couple of feet. They're really big. But the, a couple of feet? Yeah, and then the tentacles go even longer. But the problem with the lion's mane is the um, venom, it's neurotoxicity. It can cause a lot of damage. It's a very painful. 
is known to cause um, arrhythmias and it's just very, very... Oh, I don't know. Look, we're just, just going to have hopefully dodged them. We'll be so quick we're just going to swim around them. And um, there are no sharks. It's too oh, cold for sharks. Oh, <laughs> now, there has I been... Check that out. Yeah, there has <laughs> been like uh, orcas sighting and there's minke whales and dolphins and bass. There's basking and sharks, but they won't go near you. So hopefully now we won't see any of that and we'll just swim and see what happens. Have you been stung by jellyfish before yes. on these swims? Oh, multiple times, yeah, yeah. I presume you're you're kitted out completely. No, in... no, you're allowed one hat, one pair, one pair of goggles, and just a normal pair of swimming togs. Yeah, nothing down to your knees. It's just your normal togs that you see people wear. Yeah. So you yeah. have no protection. Nothing at all. No, you can put a bit of Vaseline or lanolin on if you want, but I don't tend to do that. So you don't put anything on. No, no. Maybe a bit of Vaseline around my shoulders to stop the chafing, but no. So you're getting into the water in a pair of togs and, yeah. a, and a hat yeah. and you're going to swim the North Channel. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, and how long will that take you? Ooh, how long is a piece of string? We're hoping to do it in between nine and ten hours. That's that's what we'd like to do, but it could be 12, 14 hours. We, you just don't know. We're, it's all up to our pilot and up to the conditions and just luck on the day. So it, it really, it's hard to know. And how are you training for this? Well, we've been training the last couple of years. We swim all the time anyway. That's what we do. That's our... our our hobby is such a Yeah, that's what we, well, we do and pool swimming. So um, we made a decision to do this about a year, well, longer than that, because you got to book the channel, um, make contact with our, actually it was a year and a half, two years ago. So we booked it with um, Infinity Channel Swimming and here our pilot, Porig Mellon, is going to bring us across. What do you mean you have to book it? You can't just swim across the channel. It has to be ratified and it has to be, you have to be with someone that knows the currents and knows how to get you across. So there's two ways of doing this. So you have to register with ILDSA, which is the Irish Long Distance Swim Association, who ratify and verify the swim. In order to do the swim, you have to do medicals. You have to do um, a two-hour swim to show that you can swim in certain temperatures and that all has to be observed and logged. And then we have chosen Infinity Channel Swimming, um, Porg Malin is the name of the pilot, who's going to be our escort vessel and is going to bring us across, I hope. <laughs> So yeah. this is um, so you've booked the, the, the you have to book the booked, channel pay for it yes yeah, everything's done so now we just need the weather and the sea gods to say I right, off he's go. What about cramp and that sort of thing, Rachel? Is there is there are, are there other are there medical things that can arise while you're swimming? Well, of course you could get a cramp, but the three of us have been swimming the last thirty years, so we're, we're not worried about anything like that, you know. And your fitness levels is there a difference between? Fitness for running and fitness for oh, swimming. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, we could swim forever, but if I ran up a road now, I'd probably have to stop for a little while, take a breath. So um, with the thing with the North Channel, what we've all done is we've all put on a little bit of weight, well, a good bit of weight, because you need the blubber to keep you a bit warm. So um, <laughs> we, have, no, we're, we're, we have... We're laughing here because actually Rachel looks <laughs> no, no, pretty no, damn no, no, no. toned and skinny. No, we have, and um, we do a lot of endurance swimming, so we wouldn't do any sprint swimming, so we just keep swimming. And in the sea, we've been training all the time and if you're on your own you get in and some few laps you're never here and never there and you're in this I was in this pool this morning at five o'clock and then um, yeah so and Rachel why are you doing this this sounds like agony I know it does doesn't it but it's our thing it's our swimspiration it's what we do and what we're good at swimspiration yeah, did you yeah. make that up yeah kind of it's yeah. a great <laughs> word um, and, but, it's, it, but you're doing it for a cause we are doing it for a cause we're doing it for plastic awareness is one of the things when I was doing the um, English Channel a few years ago when I was training um, I couldn't get over the amount of plastic bottles coffee cups cigarette butts just 
domestic waste that I actually... You noticed this before David Attenborough yeah, well, came on the television with it. <laughs> I wish I had his awareness and yeah. But yeah, I just couldn't get over the difference um, in the last few years of swimming. So we've decided to um, change a few things in our lifestyle and um, I've become an ambassador for Clean Coasts on Tashka for the uh, beach cleanup. So anytime we go to the sea, we always pick up some litter and recycle it, um, whether it's a two minute beach clean or it's, you know, three from the sea. And I'm really trying to teach our kids and our friends and we uh, coach open water clinics as well. And it's all part of it. So what we ask people to do is we provide tea and coffee and we always have our reusable mugs for people to use. But we're trying to get people to use a single cup all the time, not go into a coffee shop. We all need our coffee and tea, but just bring a clean cup with you, a ceramic mug. You don't need to buy a plastic cup all the time. And even here I have my water bottle with me. I bring my water bottle everywhere. Um, Dublin City Council has an initiative now and they've put a lot of water fountains around the place. So there is, um, there are, you can access water if you need it, just rather than buying bottles of water because those bottles just drive me mad, you know. There's no need for it. And what is the main type of litter you're picking up? Plastic bottles. Plastic bottles. Coffee cups, cigarette butts and just bits of plastic. I mean, they say, it's estimated, estimated that 8 million metric tonnes of plastic is dumped into our seas every year. And that's just plastic, not domestic waste. So it's scary. And because I think having become a mom changes it as well, I want my kids to swim in the seas that I swam in. I never worried about uh, plastic, mm. but now I'm teaching them about straws. They know they can't have straws and they have their own mugs. They have their own uh, water bottles and just little things like that. And I'd love to go into the schools and teach the kids because once you teach kids something, they just remember it and what they're brilliant. What else did you tell them, Rachel? Well, I just tell them how the plastic kills the fishes. So... Yes. <laughs> So, um, but we teach them a lot. Like Tom, my husband is really, really good. I teach them all about um, fish life. Like we had them crab fishing last night and we teach them about, you know, the rock pools and do's and don'ts. And we're just teaching them about the water. And I'm also trying to teach them now about the tides and the wind and just explaining um, the, the direction the winds are coming from, just so they have a lot more awareness than I have. But they, um, they know about picking up a litter and... Now we have pick-up sticks. I don't get them picking up rubbish, but they'll hold the plastic bag for me and I'll show them because there's some things we're picking up that you don't want any kid yes. touching, as you can imagine. Yeah. But I just think it's really important for them to have awareness. And I hear them telling their friends. And unfortunately, you know, I really fear that the sea isn't going to be the sea in 20 years like I've had it. Yeah. And for their children as well. And it's just because it's something that I use and it's free and we're so passionate about it, whether you're just going for a little dip to, to flow and just because you've had such a bad day or you want to do a bit of exercise, it mightn't be there in a few years the way it is now. So I think it's so important that we are aware of this. You know? and I, yeah, you yeah. also teach swimming, Rachel. Yeah, yeah, we do. So your whole life really is, 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 is water-based? Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart from work, <laughs> yeah. And well, do you teach normal swimming or is it always people who want to do these ultra Well, ultra initially swims? we started off um, Ocean Breakers to coach open water swimming for triathletes and open water swimmers. Um, so from, the, from May to September, we kind of do it in the open water. And then from September to May, I coach uh, Friday nights in Dundamead. But now it's become for everybody that just wants to, you know, have people come up to me in their 70s, 80s that just want to be able to float, just want some company, just want to get out there because uh, a swim for everyone isn't like, for, like I go in, I do a few kilometres and I get my thought process and I just have my escapism time. Um, and then I get in with the kids or get in with my family. But for some people, it's just they just need, you know, a fix. So they say vitamin C is in SEA or they just might be having a bad day. The mental health aspect of it is huge. Yeah. And um, Do you find, Rachel, I noticed recently there was a yeah. friend of mine took part in, in, a, in a fundraising, uh, a series of fundraising with this guy, amazingly, swam a mile a day, yeah. either in the sea or the pool, yeah. to raise funds for a particular cancer uh, research. 
Um, and what my friend discovered was that most people didn't know how to swim properly yeah. and they had to learn to swim properly yeah. to swim a mile. Yeah. Do you find that? People can kind of sort of dog paddle along. Yeah, you always get people, oh, I can swim, I can time. swim. Yes. And they go, brilliant. And then I've learned over the years and then you bring them out and they can't swim. They think swimming is just standing doing this, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we don't expect everybody when we coach them to be, right, that's it, swim in the channel. But for some people, like, the channel for them is just swimming 20 metres in the sea and back and being able to swim safe and feel comfortable in it and to enjoy it. And that's what we're trying to give back to people. And knowing they could rescue themselves. Yes, oh, yeah. exactly. I'm afraid I'm one of those self-taught <laughs> oh, swimmers. I'll have to meet you then. And I, w- I would absolutely yeah, yeah. Well, need fear to, is a to huge start thing. from scratch. Yes. Yeah, and that's what we do. And like we can, can meet us every week or, um, yeah, we have loads of uh, little plans and things that we do. And Rachel, in the middle of all this, tell us about your sponsors before we move on <gasps> yes, to the rest so of your we were re- I met this really cool chick named Yvonne um, Simon, of course. You meet the most wonderful people in the sea. And I was telling her all about adventures and things and she couldn't believe that we fund them all ourselves because, well, that's what most people do. So we we're really, really lucky to be sponsored by Kingspan and by the Environmental Protection Agency. So Kingspan have paid for our swim um, across the North Channel, which is going to cost about five grand. And the EPA have paid towards our registration with ILDSA and with all the swims that we've done, our race and training swims that we've done in order to get ready for the swim. And Kingspan, I have to say, are incredible because... They um, are re- recycling and collecting uh, 1 billion water bo- plastic bottles by 2025, which they're using again in their products for insulation. So that is just... So to be sponsored by someone that's actually trying to be sustainable and trying to help the ocean is just incredible. Well, hooray. And the EPA have all the... Marvellous. You know, the cutting edge and research and education. So it's really, really great to be sponsored by these people. We that couldn't do it without them. Blue chip. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know how you find time for the, for for another for the rest of your life, Rachel. Yeah, well, my cousin but, says you'll sleep when you're dead. You know. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you have two little boys who are who who you obviously incorporate yeah. into yeah. this fantastic water life yeah. of yours. But you're also you're firefighting. Yeah, yeah. Most that, is that mostly day work or how does no, that no, work? No, no, it's shifts. So it's day and night. So we do seven days, seven nights a month. So the day shifts are nine hours, and the night shifts are fifteen, sixteen hours. So what I tend to do is when I'm on, and I'm lucky because my husband's a firefighter as well. So we work opposite shifts. That is handy. Yeah. So we swim early in the morning and late at night. Early in the morning and mm. late at night mm. together. No, 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 no. So someone always has to be with the kids. Oh right. Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but I when they're in that. school or if there's something, then we do swim together. So it's great. And Rachel, in terms of the firefighting, mm. what brought you into that? Well, I was a nurse before. I started nursing in 97 and I was, I'd always been swimming anyway. And I used to swim at a club in Guinness Swimming Club and a few of the lads there were firefighters. And uh, one of my friend, Greg especially, was always saying to me, would you not think about joining the, the fire brigade? And I was like, God, not at all. So I went over to Australia and I was just being a nurse and having the crack. And when I came back, he said, look, they're recruiting for the fire brigade. I really think you should go for it. You know, you're a nurse and you swim. And I said, right, shall I go for it? I didn't think I would get it. And I did get it. And I said, well, she's not invention, nothing gained. Or what's for you? What's not for you won't pass you. So I took it and it's the best thing um, that's ever happened to me. It's changed my life and I just love it. I love my job. What is so fabulous about it? Um, I think it's the diversity and, the you know, every day it's something different. Because I would have thought nursing would have that. It, no, I did love nursing, I have to say. Yeah. I kept up my nursing until, like, last year. I was still doing a bit of de-docking and working outside there. It was just to keep up your registration and that. But, um, no, I really, really enjoy the fire uh, brigade. And there's so many different things. Like, I do Highland Road Rescue, uh, Marine Emergency Response, Swift Water Rescue, as well as firefighting, as well as being a paramedic on the ambulance. So there's so many different um skill sets that you learn as becoming a firefighter and the confidence it gives you and the things you learn. Are you a bit unusual in the, in, in the fire brigade and that you are a qualified nurse? Um, no, actually, no, 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 no. Um, there's a few other nurses that are qualified, yeah. A few as firefighters, yeah. 
Not too many, but a few. Do you have many female colleagues? Um, well, on my watch, I'm the only girl on D-Watch in Fisborough, but there's another girl on A-Watch. There's about, I think there's about between about 60 girls in the fire brigade, about 900 um, men. So, but the numbers are... Every year, it's uh, it's attracted more and more women, so it's great. Now, Rachel, as I remarked earlier, you yeah. clearly have a very fit and toned body. <laughs> um, is, is that is that a necessity to join the fire brigade? Well, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I joined at twenty five. I have I've thirty years of work ahead of me. Well, forty next week, but still, I, I haven't been at fifteen years now. But um, you know, you want to look after your body. You want to stay fit. And as a woman as well, you know, maybe not be as strong as the lads. You got to be strong and fit and prove yourself and just be able to do. A little bit more. Right. Mm. So you find yourself having to prove yourself a bit well, more. Initially, than the I thought I did, but now I'm sorted now. Yeah. yeah. Because you're, 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 I'd say you're probably as strong as any of them. Well, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> Mentally, I think we're all a bit stronger, but sure, that's it. So you're, you're an ambassador for yeah. Grown. Tell us about Grown. Well, Grown um, is a sustainable clothing company. So the clothes that we would wear um, have a lot of plastics with inside them, and we wash them, they go into the sea, but Grown's clothing don't. So, um, and they're also all about planting trees. So anything that you buy, they're planting trees and they have just planted thousands of trees all over the country and they're just a wonderful um, company to be part of. So, yeah. Rachel, do you ever watch the television? No, actually, I don't really like television. Do I you read, read a book? No, I do, I read all the time. Do you? Yeah, I read a lot of crap. <laughs> well, I think you're allowed. Yeah, 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 yeah. You obviously have a very busy woman. No, I don't, because I sit down, and the thing is, we when I train and I do my things, it's kind of outside hours, you know? So we really want to, because you have to be there for the kids and do what you can, but we wouldn't be the couple that would, like, we don't, I go to bed early when I can, and I get up early. What's early? I would go to bed about nine, ten o'clock, you know? Um, maybe stay up for late one, eleven o'clock, Um and then I would get up early, so I'd either get up at 5am or about 7am, depending on what I'm getting up for. And do you lead a very clean life? No, no, I love my wine. You love your wine? <laughs> but are, you, are, you, are you careful with food? No, no, no. I eat. Yeah, I love to eat. I train so I can eat. So you I can love food. Yes. And I, my husband loves it too, my kids. I'm not one of those. No, not at all. Um, and I love a bottle of wine. Um, don't smoke, never smoked. But that's, yeah, I do eat and drink all the time. <laughs> Well, Rachel, you're a fantastic no, example no. to anyone such as myself yeah. who thinks getting out of bed this morning no, was a major no. achievement. <laughs> no, no, no. But I just think um, it's kind of hard. Sometimes I think as a woman having kids, it's kind of is difficult and juggling everything. So I think it's just all about getting out there and doing the best that you can, you know, especially for the kids because they love it. They're so inspired by it and they're really proud. Well, look, just remind us of what's happening next week and it's going right. to be tracked. Oh, yeah, it is. It'll be a tracker yeah. live on Facebook or Instagram. So next week, a window opens on the 24th or 25th and we're, that's the thing, that's the whole thing about a this window. as well, a weather window. You're given a week or five days to seven days depending on the tide and within those that week, if you can't get out, that's it. That's your chance gone. For how long? Because that's it. Forever. <laughs> yeah, unless you want to go again next year. Because that's the whole thing about the open water swim. You can train and train and train and you get ready to do it. And then that's it. Mother Nature just hasn't played along. So we're really hoping we get out maybe next Friday. Um, we're having a look ourselves. I met Jake. Well, should we have a clue compared to what the pilots would have looked? So we're really hoping that we get to go out and we just get the chance to start swimming from... Tom is going to go first and uh, we're going to go from Dunnegadee to Port Patrick and hopefully swim that... So, North Channel. So Tom is going first. Yes. Then you. Then me. Then Big Row. Then Big Row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Ronan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is big though. <laughs> and how can people track this? Is that uh, people um, can will log into somewhere? Yeah. Well, Infinity Channel Swimming will have a tracker up. Uh, we'll be posting it on our website as well, which is um, OceanBreakers.ie. 
Um, now, it is very boring to be tracking like to the kind of way you're just seeing a little dot going across. But um, will they be live all the dates? jellyfish. It'll be like Formula yeah, One yeah, racing, yeah. you know, just to um, see. But that's it. For swimming, for some people, it is very boring. I mean, just to look at it. But it's a, the swimming is all about what you're feeling while you're swimming and your thought process. And just you never regret a swim. You always feel good. And I hope I say that after I do the North Channel. <laughs> Rachel, yeah. the very best of luck. Thank you so the much. Women's podcast and from the oh, entire yeah. country. And oh, may the jellyfish so be far, far away. I know. I know. So do I hope. But thanks so much for this opportunity to come and talk to you lovely people. So thank you. Thanks, Rachel. No worries. That was Rachel Lee there. Thanks and good luck to her and to our book clubbers, Roisin Ingle, Bernice Harrison, Neve Towie and Anne Ingle and Polly Dennison. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with Rob O'Sullivan on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.